Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This day, July 24th, our panellists see signs of life in Canberra on Academic Inquiry and the Peter Ridd case. Channel 10 rejects a union campaign to fire MasterChef George Columbaris, but he's out the door anyway. And chalk up another win for Eton and Oxford as Boris Johnson strolls into number 10. As always, we close with our books and culture segment. Today we look at Russell Crowe in a fat suit trying to take down Roger Ailes of Fox News, a collection of essays by controversial author Brett Easton Ellis, the actual book of The Handmaid's Tale, and also a pretend autobiography of the Roman Emperor Hadrian. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined as always, this time on the line, by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Chris, great to have you. Also with us in the IPA studio is our Director of Policy, Gideon Rosner. Great to be here as always. And Director of Communications, Evan Mulholland. Thanks, Scott. Evan, great to have you back. Don't forget, this podcast is brought to you by the IPA. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate. As I mentioned, uh, there was significant news out of Canberra yesterday with apparently a big discussion in the coalition party room about what was happening with academic freedom and in particular Peter Ridd, Gideon Rosner. Yeah, thank you, Scott. So look, I'll go right to the beginning of the Peter Ridd saga just for the benefit of the the three listeners who haven't uh, caught (laughs) up on our extensive research on the matter. But uh, so Peter Ridd is or was an academic uh, professor of physics at James Cook University in Townsville. Uh, A number of years ago, he started uh, making certain statements about his assessment of the quality of science surrounding climate change and the on the and the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, The effect of those remarks was that he didn't think that, uh, firstly, the coral bleaching effect and problems we hear about were a bit overblown, but secondly, the science that suggests these problems were real wasn't being properly checked, tested or verified. And we'll link to all that information uh, on our website. Absolutely, and if you are interested, go to uh, ipa.org.au forward slash Peter Ridd. But anyway, long story short, he gets handed out of his university, takes him to court on the basis of uh, unlawful termination. In April, uh, he... One, in in terms of the substantive decision in the Federal Circuit Court, uh, but the, uh, last week I went back to Brisbane for his subsequent hearing, which was determined to determine what he gets by way of compensation and remedies. Anyway, as in the course of those proceedings, J- James Cook University's legal counsel admitted in open court, as well as written documents, that JCU intends to appeal after. Everything that they put Peter through after losing so comprehensively in the first in the substantive decision, after the bad press they've received, and after, as the IPA has uh, revealed via a freedom of information request, um, blowing at least six hundred and thirty thousand dollars of taxpayers' money in legal fees, James Cook University appears to be priming itself to throw good money after bad by prolonging this ugly dispute. The so relevance to actually, the party just, room. Just before Sorry. we do go into the party room, that's a good point. So let's just pause for a moment there. Is, as a great man once said, 100000 here, 100000 there. Pretty soon you're talking real money. $630,000. And that's we found that via an FOI request. Yes, we did um, and, and released it uh, early in the week. That's a lot of money. 
and a lot some of money that could be some, spent on a university. Some suggest research that's and teaching. even at the lower end because the university is able to hide a lot of its costs, whether it be whether their insurance is kicked in or whether it be uh, pushing around different accounts to different places. But that is a lot of money uh, for an institution backed by the taxpayer. Now, if you're uh, saying there's no J- uh, free speech crisis. And JC, you actually did say oh, people like the IPA and the Australian and Sky News are, uh, are wrong to suggest that JCU is against freedom of speech. If you are willing to spend at minimum $630,000 backed by the entire weight of a university administration and taxpayer funds to silence one of your own academics, that I'm sorry, I think those organisations, including our own, are very justified in saying JCU has a problem with freedom of speech. We should add uh, that nobody's suggesting that JCU is not complying with FOR law, but I, I did suspect the figure of 630000 was actually at the, at the low end. I'm surprised it was that low. My suspicion is, and again, I don't know this for a fact, and um, but my theory is that some of those costs might have been borne by insurers and so on. But in any event, in anybody's language, 630000 is a lot of money. Um, but it's also, it's, it's, it's definitely a lot more than that because the amount of management time that would be involved. And, you know, traditionally, it's really hard to price out those sorts of, you know, the attention of the vice chancellor, the attention of internal legal teams. It's very challenging to price those out. So it's definitely more. But the question is not really how much was spent. It's that why have they decided to spend so much money? And so when we interviewed Peter Ridd as on this podcast um, uh, a month or two ago, he um, uh, wasn't sure exactly why they were so dedicated to going after him. My personal view about this is James Cook University is a really unusual university insofar as its reputation is really based around its reef science. So there is so much institutional reputation. There is so much relationship with um, uh, funding bodies like the Australian Research Council. There's so much built and backed into JCU's personal uh, institutional defense of the science of, of reef science and by implication the science of climate change so to have peter ridd challenge it it's not about peter ridd mm. it's about whether jcu and all this reputation that it's built up over many many years is is justified um that that it, it's all about that and why if you're the university and if you think those are the stakes why wouldn't you put multi-million dollar into defending yourself. Now, I, th- I think that's terrible for academic freedom, but I think that's the calculation that we're watching here. Well, that's exactly the calculation we're watching here, to my mind. But the, as you said, that's terrible for academic freedom. But if universities don't make academic freedom their paramount value, what are they for? So, um, so to resume the, the, the narrative, Gideon, so this is the prospect that you heard in the courtroom in Brisbane last week, that they, they, it is their intention to appeal. And, and when you appeal, then we're talking about um, uh, something way beyond the notional $630,000. And, and this is an issue that is concerning a lot of people. And this is actually what came up yesterday in Canberra. Yes. So the relevance to yesterday's party room meeting, the meeting of the joint coalition party room, is that uh, five MPs, I understand, uh, brought up uh, this um, 
uh, they, they brought up this issue, uh, that being Craig Kelly, George Christensen, Warren Inch, Paul Scar, and James Patterson. Now, some of, of those people are, are sort of to the, the right of the Liberal Party, but not all of them. Um, but there are a range of reasons for the complaint. Firstly, obviously, the waste of taxpayers' money. But secondly, for people like Warren Inch and George Christensen, JCU is in their electorates. And also, their electorates are dependent on Great Barrier Reef tourism. And the issue that we've heard is that this bemoaning the sense of the reef, this idea the reef is dead, the, the, this idea that there's nothing to see at the Great Barrier Reef but ghastly white corals and it's all been destroyed, A, is not true and it's fake news, but secondly, it is taking food out of the mouths of the families of tour- tourism operators in Queensland. So the significance of all this is that you know, it, the Peter Reed case is an important one. It, it, it's a very, very telling one about the university's uh, um, attitudes to free speech in this day and age, but it, it's at its heart an obscure workplace dispute in a, a lower court. Um, but what it has turned into is a national discussion on academic freedom and it is reaching the highest echelons of uh, the government. Everybody from the Prime Minister down is now talking about Peter Ridd. So it is it is refreshing and encouraging to see this conversation occurring in the Liberal Party room where it can uh, make a difference and hopefully we can see some reform. I'm uncomfortable with this. Um, so... Look, I, I think it's good that the coalition is thinking about the institutional frameworks about academic freedom and so forth. What I'm uncomfortable with is the idea that we might be launching inquiries or changing legislation, not because we're concerned solely about academic freedom, but we're concerned with the results of academic work. So if if the concern is, and, and, and maybe maybe this is not quite the case, but if the concern is, well... Um, only only Peter Ridd was putting out the science that the members of parliament around the Great Barrier Reef supported and or, or, or would like to see, then the idea that we would have a government response to that is, is really quite of an issue. And I think we've got to, anytime the government gets involved, you've got to really worry about the, the two-way street of academic freedom. It, it, yes, it's all well and good to protect academic freedom, in policy, but it's dangerous if we start asking the government to do it for uh, us. Okay, okay, hang on. Uh, that's a uh, that stands as a reasonable general point, Chris. But um, it's legitimate to raise. And and what uh, if we follow Joe Kelly's story in the Australian, based on uh, sources from the party room, um, it was not a call for inquiries or whatever. It's raising the issue. And and two responsible ministers, um, the minister for education. Uh, Dan Tien, uh has said, yes, this is an issue. Uh, and actually, in, in a very old school kind of way, he first proposes to uh, just have a chat with the Vice-Chancellor of JCU and find out what the story is. Um, uh, <laughs> just, a fr- just a friendly chat. Yeah, just a friendly chat. But that is uh, not an unreasonable thing. And I think, no. you know, so you're... Je- uh, and and there, is a, there is a bit of a shift going on, and, and to my mind, not before time, where, where the Minister for Federal Education is no longer saying, well, despite all the, you know, the billions of dollars we give the university sector, despite all the billions of dollars we give research institutions, I, as Minister for Federal Education, am not going to interfere in any way about anything and anywhere and any time. And I think to Dan, Dan Teen's credit, he's saying, well, no, I'm going to take an interest in this. And then there was also Christian Porter, the Attorney General, talking about the, the court case. So, yeah, fair general point, Chris, but this... this these are legitimate issues, and 
it might be in Jay's, JCU's interest to protect its reputation for research, but they are destroying the reputation of the reef as a tourism destination. There is a conflict of, of interest, at, at the very least, if not a conflict of principles, there is a conflict of interest going on here. Well, well, that, that's right. The only the only caveat that I'm mentioning here is that we can't take that factual dispute and make that the target of the discussions. Because to say that if the government is unhappy with the academic research that's being pushed out by JCU, assuming that it's within you know uh, within scholarly norms, all that, and therefore the um, minister needs to have a word with the vice chancellor i think that's that's going down the same that that's going to make the same if not worse academic freedom concerns i think jcu has been absolutely in the wrong here but i don't want our reaction to actually harm academic freedom yeah itself. chris i take your point I, I think that you're you're making the perfect the enemy of the good in some respect i mean look obviously the, you know as i said the the particularly the lower house mps who've intervened are concerned with the consequences of their electorate as every mp is but fundamentally the the direction that this debate is heading in um, is the is the right one. Um, I, I suppose the the issue is if you know universities were wholly private organisations, they could do whatever they like. But we spent we do spend billions of dollars in public money to create public squares of higher learning and intellectual inquiry. It's not unreasonable to expect them to do their duty by the taxpayer to be complete free speech and free intellectual inquiry zones. And if they can't do that, then it might be the time for the government to intervene uh, because this is this is a, a, a transparency issue. This is a, a value for taxpayer money issue as well as respecting the historical mission of the university, which is a place uh, for the search for truth. I saw in the... Um in the briefings out of, uh, out of what happened in the party room, that at the end of the discussion, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison was actually broadly supportive uh, of the discussion and said that we could make this part of a broader message about academic freedom. Um, I, I, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the government stepping in and actually funding uh, the RID case, but I suspect... So, well, sorry, just talk about that for a moment, Evan. So this... This was the other minister that I mentioned. This was Christian Porter, the Attorney yep. General, who who trawled that idea. Yeah, I mean, he 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 put it out there as a precedent that the Attorney General does have a discretion to fund significant test cases. Um, I suspect that Minister Dan Tehan stepping in and just having a chat to JCU, and the the government as a whole seem to be on Peter Ridd's side will have much more of an impact on what JCU does and much more of an impact and pressure on the JCU council than, say, the government stepping in with taxpayer funds. As we've seen, Peter Ridd um, is able to stand on his own two feet. He raised $260,000 in five days. Uh, I think um, people power will fund uh, this appeal uh, anyway. Um, so I'm not sure that we need taxpayer funds to step in. Yes, t- taxpayer funds on both sides. And also, and also, of course, and Gideon, you've, you've been closer to this, um, to have a test case on the finer points of uh, whether or not uh, an academic freedom clause in an enterprise bargaining agreement negotiated by the NTU is not really the test case you want um, as opposed to something a more general point, uh, which I think, and, and Dan Tien certainly gets this, the point is if we only have the EBA as protection of academic freedom, then we haven't really elevated it to a point of fundamental principle. I must say, because I travelled around Queensland last week and I conducted a series of interviews for an upcoming documentary-style serialised podcast that the IPA is going to put out on the Peter Ridd 
uh, case, uh, which you will, heard will, it here first, which, will, which will be excellent. I highly recommend you <laughs> subscribe news. in a month or two, two time. Um, uh, but I did, I did meet with somebody from the NTEU. Uh, now, probably the first and only time somebody from the IPA has set foot in the NTEU's office, or indeed any union's office. But I will give them credit. Look, we disagreed on a lot, but I will give them credit where it's due. I was very impressed by their rock solid commitment to academic freedom and they and this bloke said to me you know is in, in this interview that we're going to publish we will never ever give up in a negotiation academic freedom clauses and there are a number of universities not just jcu jcu is attempting to strip out their academic freedom clause but by this bloke's reckoning there are there are 10 that have tried to do that in the latest bargaining round wow and that is scandalous that is that is because i know yeah, it's bad right, for their business but, model but what what strikes me is that other academics. So I'm I'm an academic, and I'm very, um, very disturbed by this Peter Reid case. In part because you know how it reflects my own freedom, but I'm I'm surprised or even shocked how few academics and scholars have actually been deeply engaged in this Peter Reid dispute. Um, and I worry that one of the reasons that academic freedom is 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 less and less part of the EBA bargaining process is because fewer academics think it's as important as I think it is. When when it comes down to it, most academics are working in fairly uncontroversial spaces. They're they're doing their own thing. They're just getting on with a specific yeah. job, and they're working towards promotions and so forth. Uh, that's right. I think aren't, I, I think Thomas Kuhn called it normal science. You just, Normal science, yeah. You're so just, you're just but, working but, in a paradigm. It's fine. Yeah. Now, and 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 that's fine because that work needs to be done. But what happens if you're not at the same time defending the principle of academic freedom and really being out on the barricades for this um, for this principle when you're thinking about you know EBA clauses and you're thinking about your workplace bargaining situation, you're thinking about even your work planning and all that sort of stuff. You, it, and unless we're defending it, it's going to be really hard to sustain. It's not going to be sustained from Canberra. Absolutely. A lot of commentary has been brought up, and I think we're only scratching the surface uh, with the whole Peter Reid saga, is that how many other academics are there? You said that you know not many academics are actually concerned, but there might be. How many other a- academics are there that are seeing what has happened to Peter Ridd, the, the fact that he's had to put uh, put up his own money, fundraise, uh, his uh, fundraise to, to even stand up to academic freedom in the first place in and is his, at the uh, end of his career. And he put his money hand his, into his own pocket as well. Yeah. And, and that was and, hefty. And so how many other academics are there looking at that saying, oh, I shouldn't make that decision or question uh, that research because I might end up like Peter Ridd. Yeah. So, and next week... I'm I'm looking forward, I think we'll be talking about some of the measures that academics might be able to take to uh, protect themselves. Um, but we're just talking about the unions, of course. Uh, another example of the power of collective bargaining is uh, three masterships. <laughs> Good segue. Thank Good you. Segue. George Columbaris, um, <laughs> Matt Preston and Gary Megan decided that uh, together they would uh, uh, go to the producers of MasterChef and say, we want a stonking big pay rise. And uh, this has been a, an amazing context given uh, the difficulties that uh, George Columbaris is in. But uh, that attempted collective bargaining uh, didn't land an agreement and they're out the door. But what has been going on particularly with George Columbaris? No, it wasn't a brilliant strategy, Scott. Um, so George Calambaris has been in the news um, in the middle of this pay dispute, turns out, because he has underpaid over the course of many years all his workers, something like 500 
workers across his restaurants, um, the Press Club, Hellenic Republic, uh, and Jimmy Grants. Uh, he underpaid his workers seven point eight million dollars, um, and he's been he's had to obviously pay that money back, and um, uh, and, and has also been fined two hundred thousand dollars. Had to sign an enforceable undertaking under the Fair Work Commission. But as you say, so this is this is an issue because. In part, the unions have been making a really strong push against what they're describing as wage theft when you're um, – in fact, the definition of wage theft is interesting, and I might turn to, to that in a moment. But the, the result, of, of course, has been that um, we're now talking about you know workers' conditions in the hospitality industry and so forth. I, w I actually went to have a look at the enforceable undertaking that the Fair Work Commission put on, and I think there's – we're mixing up a couple of things – that are going on and the unions are deliberately mixing this up. I think there's a big difference between someone who voluntarily agrees to be paid less than a regulated wage. Let's say the minimum wage is $15 or whatever it is, or $17. $19 um, plus. $19, good me. Um, let's say the minimum wage is $19 and I but it's go to an the employer award. And I go to an employer and I say, um, I'm willing to work for $15, even though the law says I can't. There's a big difference between that and I go and I expect $19, but you only surreptitiously pay me $15, even though, of course, I hadn't, you know, um, agreed to do so. I think one of them, the latter one is obviously theft. There's no question that if, so, if an employer fails to pay you, the amount of money that you've negotiated, it's theft. If it's a private negotiation where you both agree we're not going to be bound, when we're not going to follow the regulatory requirements, I don't think that's the same thing. And what's happened is that the unions have very deliberately tried to mix these two situations up. I think they're morally different and they should be treated as legally different. And we're talking about hospitality and, and uh I haven't had the pleasure of reading the uh, enforceable undertaking. I will take that up, Chris. But uh, it, it is a cracker. I was going to yeah. make it my culture pick. Yeah, anyway. that's right. So, um, in the hospitality industry, you know, I'm shocked shocked to discover that um, uh, people are working longer than forty hours a week. I mean, this this who knew uh, that people in restaurants were doing that? I mean, since. Uh, you know, Adam and Eve opened that restaurant in the Garden of Eden and Adam was cook <laughs> cooking the steaks and Eve was doing front of house. I suspect that uh, very few of their employees um, worked uh, the award rate for those hours. So generally, I, I don't think they negotiate away uh, officially hourly rates, but what you tend to have is longer hours, later shifts, these, these kinds of things. And, and one of the facets of this, of course, is... Uh, it, we say George Columbaris, but it is actually a corporate entity with financial backers, um, uh, MAID, uh, the MAID Establishment Proprietary Limited. And you can, uh, I think a Fair Work Commission can audit and, and track down these sort of corporate entities. And there will be people who want to rebel against the custom and practice of longer hours for the same pay. But then there's this vast, vast tail in the hospitality sector, which is just going to carry on as it always has. Well, this is this is the thing. This is so widespread, uh, and and it's one thing to have a go at George Columbaris, and you know I can understand why uh, even the right wing media commentators are baying for his blood because it's not a good look. I mean, this is in, 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 if indeed he has, uh, you know. 
as Chris said, this is a case of clear wage theft. This is a guy who can, you know, ostensibly can afford to pay the full award rate. These restaurants do very, very well financially. But to all these hipsters who are huffing and puffing over this case, if you think that the charming dumpling bar in the city that you like so much or your cafe where you get your morning latte from is not paying people under the table, you are deluded. Uh, these restaurants are not engaging in this practice because they don't want to pay the afford the, the award rate but if you're serving a six dollar plate of dumplings you cannot afford to pay the 19 dollars an hour uh, for staff and and this is this is a feature of the system but but a lot of the time people who are doing these hours at later shifts do so knowingly are being paid under the table knowingly because they understand the choices in between a job at the award rate or a job at a slightly lesser rate the the choices between a job at a slightly lesser rate or no job at all I, I then, think then it, how, how should we think about that? So, I mean, is, is so is uh, what, what do you think of this distinction? Because there's, I think there's a big moral difference between wage theft, which is pay not paying what you promise to pay, and sort of a regulatory avoidance yeah. story. I oh, just don't. Yeah. I, I I just don't. I can't get. Uh, in, in fact, I think the regulatory avoidance story is actually because precisely as you say, we have really high minimum wages, we have really high regulations around employment and so forth. Well, I mean, as a matter of principle, the, the, if it's a case of regulatory avoidance, the regulations are inherently immoral to begin with. If an employer and an employee decide on terms that are mutually beneficial to them and mutually agreeable, then you know, obviously it's not up to the government to step in with this bloated, overblown industrial relations behemoth that we have in this country to say otherwise. But the other injustice of it is that, you know, as we often say at the IPA, particularly with reference to our dignity of work program, these high minimum wages and standards are the toughest on people without a job. Uh, the the new start allowance, and that's been in the news as well this week, uh, is currently works out to about six dollars an hour averaged around a $38 working week. The minimum wage is 19 odd dollars and that's before you add in the premiums from various awards, penalty rates, etc, etc. If you want to work at some rate between $6 and $19, say $14 or $15 or $16, you are breaking the law and you are turning into the person offering you that job a, a, a criminal that well, is that is immoral that well, is the immorality of the system i think i think it, it was the unions that said uh it's okay to break uh unjust laws so maybe george calambaris was just following their <laughs> their advice I, I, the john I think, john setker approach yeah, exactly exactly uh you know a nod to sally mcmanus um <laughs> at, at best I, I think it was sloppy accounting very silly sloppy accounting at worst i think it was a sort of sinister underpayment uh that was ongoing um as a, i think it does show the complexity of the ir system i agree with giddy on that point as an aside i saw you know the abc was covering this gung-ho they obviously made it you know one of their top stories um you know quite a scandal um no mention on any abc report I saw that they also had similar issues with underpayment recently. <laughs> yes. um, a, a, quite a bit of selective editing going on there. But it shows if the ABC, a $1.1 billion a year organisation, can't um, uh, figure out the complexity of our IR laws, how is the milk bar, how is the cafe on the, at the corner shop meant to? Well, that's right. So, so minimum wage is, is like a policy issue, and, and Gideon put that very well. But, uh, and what you're talking about is the sheer... Uh, like there is no single minimum wage. I mean, there's, there's minimum wages for all, all different categories of staff, all different ages. Well, there are 122 staff. awards, and within those awards, there are you know at least five levels per award of pay, depending on how long you've been there. So we're literally talking about thousands of individual minimum wages. Plus, again, I make the point. So this plus is allowances, compliance. This is plus, actual red tape. Well, yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And we are the only country on the face of the earth to have such a ludicrous system. I might add, plenty of countries have minimum wages, but no other country, as far as I'm aware, has anything close to the absurdity of our award system. No, it's a uniquely Australian invention. I think I think Singapore borrowed it. That's about it. All right. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, there you go. That's well, a, I'm sure that's, there's uh, another payment going Griffin, to those hawker stores. That's uh, industrial relations, uh, C3, a unit of my economics degree in the 1980s. <laughs> but things things you retain. Uh, they, they thought it would be a good idea. but um, And they say education is a waste of time. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But, um, uh, yes, as... as uh, as Gary Wolfram, who was a guest of the IPA recently, uh, talking to some young people for the IPA Academy, said, imagine if somebody stood up and said, you know, isn't it terrible that some people, their marginal product of labour is only $10 an hour? Isn't that terrible? They should be banned from working. I'm, I'm going to make it illegal for anyone whose marginal value of product is only $10 an hour from working. At a minimum, your marginal value of product must be $19 an hour. No. Otherwise, I will make sure you cannot work. If you stood up and said it that way, there'd be outrage. But that's what that's I mean. Right. And, 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 and we, should, we should be clear that we uh, reading this fair work um, uh, enforceable undertaking, it's not totally clear and it doesn't very strongly distinguish between what what i see as actual wage theft and um sort of regulatory avoidance voluntary regulatory avoidance so it's not totally clear exactly what's going on here and that would be very much no. about the relationships that they have but still the the idea that um the only story as the the unions will tell us the only story is rapacious capitalists um, like George Columbaris is is obvious nonsense. Yes. Correct. And that's what surprised me about this debate. I mean, even watching my beloved Sky News, some commentators on there were uh, hot and bothered. And I guess for somewhat understandable reasons in on the on the surface of it, but nobody is discussing as I said nobody is discussing, as I said, this uh, the, the the unworkability as a matter of compliance and the inherent immorality of our IR system. It's it's very disappointing to see that gap in the public debate. And and, and that's why we have Looking Forward, the podcast, <laughs> by the Institute of Public Affairs. <laughs> <laughs> Join or donate at ipa.org.au. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Uh, meanwhile, on the other side of the planet, um, the Conservative Party has finally, finally, after an exhaustive, an exhausting uh, process, I believe uh, uh, 7,000 miles uh, backwards and forwards across the country in their leadership, Con contest has finally arrived at Boris Johnson. Yes, so uh, to recapitulate again for people who've been living under a rock, uh, Theresa May, arguably the most incompetent Prime Minister Britain has seen since Neville Chamberlain resigned some time ago, which triggered the uh, Conservative Party's leadership election rules. Uh, now, under those rules, the party room, as it were, votes on whichever candidate nominates, they're knocked out round by round, and whoever's left goes to a ballot of the party membership. Uh, so there were 10 candidates who nominated. After five ballots, uh, it was the field was whittled down to Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt, and uh, last night the result was announced. There were 159,000-odd eligible electors with a turnout of 87.4%, which I understand is very high for an internal political party leadership ballot. And the result was uh, Boris Johnson winning with a margin of about 36% uh, to 34 which I understand is actually in the history that Britain's been, and I could be wrong, but in, I understand that in the history of Britain doing, the British political parties doing these 
mass membership elections and, and all three of the major parties, Labor, Lib Dems and the Conservatives do it and have been doing it since the 90s. Um, Johnson's margin is the second highest of all time, second only, ironically, to uh, given how different, different, no, no, to given how different the two personalities are, to David Cameron in 2005, yeah. who was 67%. Well, there you go. And, and of course, uh, what, what, what is it they share? In terms of their heritage, Gideon? Oh, they're both uh, Tories, they're both Etonians, they're both... Yeah, Eton and Oxford. Yeah. Class, yeah, Oxford yeah. The, the answer is class background. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry. Well, I, I don't see race, gender or class. I'm uh, more of a... <laughs> <laughs> well, Look, the, the, the Boris Johnson um, uh, victory is actually I mean, really good from the perspective of if you're interested in free markets and free people. Uh, what, what's, what's really interesting so boris has this reputation in the uk amongst the population as this sort of um uh gaff prone ditherer strange you know former spectator editor thing but he's actually like down the line highly um he's a strong free marketeer so he's very strongly pro deregulation he's very strongly pro free trade he's also deeply socially liberal as well so he was very pro same-sex marriage um uh he's very pro immigration um in fact that that we should probably talk about his relationship to australia but he's deeply pro australia as well and everybody in the uk on the left is saying oh well this is the uk's new donald trump but um uh in in many ways apart from the support of brexit they're actually polar opposites um uh, Boris Johnson is just a strong, what you'd call classical liberal prime yeah. minister. Yes, I haven't heard um, Donald Trump declaiming Homer's Odyssey in the original ancient Greek on a platform as I have with Boris Johnson. He's a very different kettle of fish. No, well, Chris, you, you, I mean, you're to, and, and that's clear, what you've said about uh, Bojo is clear from his record as Mayor of London. Do you expect him to temper that now that he's Prime Minister of the entire country? I mean, the London well, yeah, constituency is, is very different from the whole of England or the whole that, of the UK. Look, look that, that, is, that is very possible. And he's been put in as the no-deal Brexit Prime Minister. Yeah, so yeah. his one single job is to get through a no-deal Brexit. Um, and without without having that, that is the only thing he'll focus on. But what? But but what? Again, and and we've talked a bit about Brexit on this podcast, and and the the conversation tends to turn to well, once you do a Brexit, once you do no deal Brexit or you do a deal Brexit, then then the work starts. If you're going to get the gains from Brexit that we are all hoping, you actually need to start building new free trade deals. You need to start rolling back the regulations that the EU required you put on. And it's in those spaces, which are not the loudest and not necessarily the um, uh, – they won't get the most attention. That's where I think the Johnson's instincts are going to be really, really good. Now, for instance, for instance, obviously immigration has been a really big issue in Brexit and um, uh, people are very uncomfortable with the open border relationship that there is with the EU. Um, but Boris Johnson as mayor was actually really – supportive of building a new immigration deal with australia so yeah, specifically yeah. getting the sort of so we have a, a effectively an open borders relationship with new zealand boris johnson as mayor was arguing that he wants to have a similar relationship with australia so that us down in the colonies will no longer have to line up in the foreigners queue at heathrow 
airport, which he and I find deeply offensive. <laughs> now, now, if if that's the sort of thing that he's thought about in the past, that well might be the sort of thing that he's thinking about as prime minister when he has to do all the post-Brexit negotiations. What does Britain's immigration policy look like after Brexit? Well, let's let's hope it's good for Australians. Yeah, uh, just on the on the political realities, I suspect that he'll need to go to another general election before he can actually achieve uh, Brexit. Um, one of the political realities facing him is that he possibly needs the Queen to prorogue Parliament to fall even fall out of out of the EU. On this idea that that Boris is just this great, you know, classical liberal free marketeer. He does have a few policies uh, that uh, I suspect that might not be the case, uh, like uh, getting out of coal and moving to 100% renewables and also a, uh, a fibre uh, broadband network. Now, I know we really Ugh. want a free trade deal uh, with the UK, but perhaps we can do a, a free advice deal uh, from Australia <laughs> uh, to, to inform them on how the NBN went, went down here. Yes, he even put that in his acceptance speech. Correct. He talked he? about he talked about fibre sprouting from every strip. I'm thinking, no, no, don't do it. <laughs> I've just switched the NBA at NBN. You know, I left it to the last possible second. They, they forced me, and it seriously sucks. I can't stream anything anymore. Don't do F-T-T-N, it, Boris. Don't do it. Mate. FTTN. Yeah. The other, the other thing that um, has amused me in the commentary or during the campaign, especially, is uh, the very snippy tone uh, about the prospect of of a Boris Johnson. I, I don't just mean from the left, obviously. The left's going to say, oh, you know, the, the toffs are back in town. Uh, we've got the Eaton-Oxford thing, which is which is admittedly fascinating. Um, but it's a snippy tone of, um, oh, my God, you know, this honourable office, you know, the office of, of, of Churchill and um, uh, all these other, you know, uh, Lord Melbourne and all these other great prime ministers has been, is going to be disgraced by, by, by this buffoon as if, you know, all of the British... And Churchill, you know, the, the same house that Churchill lived in will now be occupied by, by this buffoon as if... If um, uh, all of those prime ministers were without fault, then that all all previous prime. British Prime Ministers have somehow been brilliant statesmen. <laughs> but, 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 Scott, you've nailed an excellent point, and this is something, Chris, I think you've overlooked in your your critique um, or your comparison of Trump with Johnson. Policy differences notwithstanding, they are stylistically obviously very similar, and they are both coming at a particular time in history where their style is needed. Uh, Boris Johnson is a disruptor. Uh, he's authentic. He's messy. But in terms of Brexit, and, you know, frankly, Brexit for me, it's, it's almost getting very difficult to follow. It's like one of those drama series that you're, you're in the eighth season. There are too many characters. There are plot twists you don't understand. Um, we, we you need... actually let Billy skip six, season six? Yeah, c- correct. <laughs> I, I, I can't, I can barely follow it given, you know, the deals that are flying around and, and everything else. But our only hope of achieving Brexit, I think, is somebody like a Boris Johnson who can just knock down the Whitehall Jenga Tower and move through and, and crash out like a wrecking ball. I, I just want to pick up a point that was made by a friend of the IPA, Dan Hannon, um, which a lot of people in the media, especially the BBC, are describing Boris Johnson as some sort of extremist, extremist and ideological, while also describing him as some sort of idiotic buffoon. Now, you can't be both. You're either one or the other, and I think it's probably the first one. Well, in, uh, Yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm very influenced by... There was a very good piece in the Washington Post by Ryan Bourne. He's the former 
Institute of Economics of Economic Affairs um, in the UK, uh, scholar, and now he's at Cato. But and he makes the point that what what Boris Johnson really is, and what's most exciting, and I think I share this with him, I, it's it, it's an optimism story, and Theresa May and to an extent Donald Trump are not the optimists. You know, the world is getting better. It's um, uh, well, I'm excited about the future, but I think that's really what. Okay, and I think a lot of political systems need right now. And Boris Johnson is that person who's excited about the future possibilities. It's sort of a morning in the United Kingdom type story. And 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 having a optimist in the middle of one of the most challenging regulatory and political environments um, that the United Kingdom has ever seen is is precisely what is needed. Uh, I, that's fine, Chris. As long as he doesn't come out with something uh, as idiotic and asinine as the, as uh, there's never been a better time to be. A, there's never been a better <laughs> Britain. Time. Yeah, I, yeah, I hope we don't hear that ever again. No, but I, I, I think that's right. And 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 it's it is a this is the genius of the uh, Westminster system is um, that one way or another the body politic can. Uh, find the right put the right tool for the job at the right time. So everyone looks back and says, Churchill, what a genius. But of course, for most of the 1930s, he was seen as an irresponsible maniac and they wanted the safe pair of hands and so they got Neville Chamberlain to maintain peace. And that lasted right up until the moment that they realised that peace could not be maintained. So you look along the shelf and you find the guy that is ready to gear up for war as it happens. And it's a bit like and and a transition from Theresa May to to Boris. I mean, in in this in a time of normal politics, someone like a Theresa May probably could have plotted along quite nicely for and, a, for a term or two. And Boris does look to to Churchill as one of his um, sort of uh, role models and ideological. Uh, wrote a book on him. Yeah, he, he, oh, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> one he wrote of the a book on him. Books if you read it, he, he he thinks deeply about a lot of these things. And and I suspect while people described uh, Churchill. As, as all those things, as, as you know, a buffoon. Uh, uh, there's a lot of similarities here. People are describing yeah. Boris Johnson as a buffoon, but he's actually a lot smarter than his appearance. I, I think that may be, Evan, why he wrote the book. <laughs> I don't want <laughs> so, to leave to any conclusions. Yes, but. yes, you, and you walked right into it, Evan. Thank you for delivering exactly what <laughs> Boris wanted to, to draw that parallel. No, it's fantastic. Oh, um, uh, speaking of books, I think we have reached that portion of the program where we do talk about what we've been reading, watching and listening to in our books and culture segment. Uh, I might lead off today because I have been reading... Uh, a book, a sort of a faux autobiography. Uh, some of the listeners of this program will know Paul Monk, uh, the writer and uh, national security expert, and uh, an exchange on Facebook. We were talking about the Emperor Hadrian and the magnificent villa that he built about 20 miles out of Rome, which I had the pleasure of visiting uh, a few years ago uh, when you're stonkingly rich and uh, emperor of, of Rome as he was, you can afford to build a pretty nice sort of weekender, uh, which he did. And uh, and so uh, Paul Monk suggested that I get hold of this, uh, a bi- uh, like I say, a faux autobiography by a French writer called uh, Marguerite Yusena. Uh, I'll probably butcher the French, forgive me. Came out in 1951, but it is a, a beautiful little piece of Uh, an idealised Hadrian towards the end of his life. Hadrian was one of the five good emperors, as they were called. It was an amazing period of peace and stability in the empire. 
Um, he was hand, he was uh, he'd taken over from from Trajan, uh, and then eventually he was to hand uh, down to Marcus Aurelius, the philosopher king. So the whole thing has that era of what does a good emperor look like? How does how does he proceed? He consolidated the boundaries of the empire. That was about as good as it got. Um, he, he, he cancelled most of the wars they were involved in, and uh, and and devoted himself to to uh, civic improvements. Uh, he also uh, he was married, but I think his tastes were otherwise. In the in the in the language of the Encyclopedia Britannica, um, he had a favourite, uh, Antonus, uh, and uh, Marguerite, uh, the author, uh, has some beautiful lyrical passages uh, expressing his his love and and commissioning the statues which you can find all over europe like there there must be hundreds of the statues of this uh this young man uh who died too young uh that hadrian loved but uh so if you're into you know books about rome uh which you know i am <laughs> uh if you're into peaceful moments in roman history which is rare that's that's right and uh but also a reflection on the empire that was as good as it got because then you know it, democracy was dead, the Senate was dead, so it starts to lose. It started to become centralised, and it starts to lose some of those um, uh, dynamic forces which kept it in shape. And uh, and oh, oh God, I just thought Tim Andrews will probably be on the phone saying, "What about the Byzantine Empire lasted another <laughs> thousand years?" But anyway, that's a debate for another day. So that's my culture pick for the week. But this is, but this is. Uh, I mean, that that's good. But this idea that there's benevolent empire emperors um the the five good emperors which is the edward gibbon phrase and just as you were talking i was quickly looking at what edward gibbon actually said this is when the roman empire was governed by absolute power under the wisdom of uh, under the guidance of wisdom and virtue there is a natural human thing to look for benign dictators we love dictatorship we just want it to be benign Mm. and positive and you know you know if i was to be critical maybe hadrian could have democratized the roman empire he could have did he consider that probably yeah, not yes and even he broke down the power of the um i mean at one stage the roman empire was a series of city states really i mean you 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 conquer greece but you know in corinth or athens or whatever you know the local uh, town council essentially is still running that city but you know that started to break down under uh hadrian as well so uh localism died and uh, <laughs> unfortunately and and we're still trying to bring it back at the ipa so uh, so i uh recently finished uh a book by Brett Easton Ellis, who is best known for American Psycho, but also books like Less Than Zero and a few others. Uh, this is his first non-fiction book, a book of essays called Wired. Uh, it touches on everything that we on the right side of politics complain about in terms of what the left derisively right off as culture wars, you know, Trump derangement syndrome, uh, the destruction of art as an aesthetic by an insistence that everything be relatable or woke, uh, millennials as what he calls generation wuss, victimhood, victimhood culture, uh, leftism as the new authoritarianism and the aftermath of, again, of Trump and the hysteria that, that accompanies that. I mean, the guy is a, a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant essayist and it was one of those volumes that was just a pleasure to read, one of those sublime reading experiences uh, and I suppose what is interesting about it is that you know Brett Easton Ellis is really the archetypal Generation X author you know cynical hedonistic rebellious subversive and applying that 
lens, uh, you know, as a self-hating millennial myself, to see the best <laughs> of Gen X applying the Gen X lens to the uh, misery and the uh, carry-on of millennials was very, very interesting and very, very interesting to uh, to see that that the 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 way Brett Easton Ellis um, applies his particular take on it. But the other thing that struck me about this book was he uses repeatedly, one recurring theme was his pejorative use of the word corporate. Now, as a free marketeer, since I was, you know, in short pants, once upon a time, I would have found that derisive reference to corporate this and corporate that quite jarring. But these days, I find myself basically sympathetic to it, because we have reached a stage of obnoxious and even oppressive corporatism where the sensors and the the uh, whether it be you know the Canberra cartel, the big government, big business, big unions, or woke capitalism or anything else is, if nothing else, irritating. There's a it's a super interesting time to think about Brett Eden Eastern Ellis. I I first read American Psycho when I was at Melbourne University and we were doing what turns out was quite an infamous course called Art Blasphemy Propaganda and Pornography and. Um, uh, and and uh, one these of the are a few of my favourite was, things. E- exactly, it was it was um, uh, it was widely attacked this subject, but I thought <laughs> I'm 19. This will be great fun. Um, uh, but but American Psycho, so the book that really made Brett Easton Ellis, it's a satire of 1980s New York, and it's a satire really of the environment in which Donald Trump came from, and um, having this writer who um, uh, so aggressively satirize that environment right now about the politics of okay what happens when patrick bateman and this is a vile defamation of the president but what happens when patrick bateman and patrick bateman's friends become the president and so what what is the what 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 occurs then this sort of hedonistic new york environment does he tackle that directly in the book or is there is there a sort of because he's such a 1980s writer yeah no look he he doesn't touch on on that because he does doesn't he's not a supporter of trump but by the end of the book he's almost sympathetic to trump and trump voters and one recurring theme of the book is he's just he's so bewildered at the you know we, we, it's a bit of a cliche to call it a bubble but really the 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 people that he mixes with in New York and Los Angeles not only don't aren't happy about the result not only aren't overreacting to the result but they can't rationalize why anybody would vote for Trump I mean it, it it's it's it highlights that polarization and that breakdown uh, and that distance between coastal elites and yeah I I, I, I can't help but think and uh, I probably won't read this book but uh, I am aware <laughs> of it I can't help but think that in many ways you know, Trump made this book possible rather than the other way around. I, I don't. I don't think Eastern Ellis was really setting the agenda. It was um, in that in that the shock of Trump's victory. I th- I think that made Eastern Ellis a more interesting guy because he's one of the ones who's saying, "Well, something just happened, and maybe it ain't all bad." Because mm. you know, I'm sick of all those other guys, and uh, you know, he's a polemicist. And yeah, I don't know. It, it, Feels a bit thin to me, but uh... oh, I'm, I'm, I like my polemicists as much as the next guy. I like uh, subversive writing, so for me, it was uh, it was great. I highly recommend it for us contrarians out there. Very good, <laughs> Chris. What have you got? Uh, so I read the novel of The Handmaid's Tale. Of course, The Handmaid's Tale was the Margaret Atwood book published in 1985. We, my wife and I, are in the middle of still, of course, watching the TV series, which is now in its third season, which is still enjoyable, but is getting more and more 
melodramatic as as a show like this would really have to be um i mean the, the handmaid's tale is a very widely um uh, read book and very famous book but i think rather than um what was most interesting for me is um what isn't in the show and that at the end of the handmaid's tale the novel there's a, what's called historical notes on the handmaid's tale it's meant to be it's a so, it's a partial transcript of a symposium on gilead Hundred years after Gilead be, being this sort of uh, after, after the religious right takes over North America, isn't, isn't that, that, that's the general yeah, proposition? So, so, well, no, uh, yes and no. So the story is, I mean, the it Handmaid's becomes a, Tale a, a theocratic state. Yes, yeah, the Handmaid's Tale is meant to. It, it, it's what happens if the US turned into a, a monotheocratic state, and so everybody has watched this movie and read. Uh, watched the TV show and read mm. the book and said, "Okay, well, this is what happens when social conservatives take over." But, um, and and that's that that's precisely what the novel is plot-wise. But in fact, the comparison that she's drawing very explicitly when you read the historical notes on The Handmaid's Tale is actually between Iran and the uh, and Gilead, this new the- monotheocratic state as well so um uh, and and just reading the novel sort of resolves some of these big debates that people have had about the tv show but there was a really interesting moment of massive moral relativism as well in the um so the historical notes are supposed to be the record of a symposium 100 or 200 years later by academics studying the text of the handmaid's tale as if it was you know it, it was text discovered um a a a first-person account of being a handmaid in Gilead, and the um, the academic, the the novels academic, t- says, if I may be permitted an editorial aside, let me say that in my opinion we must be cautious about passing moral judgment upon Gilead and the Gileadian. Surely we have learned now that such judgments are of necessity culture-specific. Our job is not to censure, but to understand, which is just the the worst parody, and is intended to be a parody of academia who look at outside cultures or the cultures that they say are outside like iran and say oh well you know this is this is culturally specific we cannot pass judgment we have to understand that and having read the story of just complete oppression and um sexual assault and abuse um for 200 pages before it's really striking margaret atwood has a strong view about how we should be judging these sorts of things and good on her. As, uh, and thank, good on her. Yeah, no, thank you for rescuing uh, that story and Margaret Atwood from uh, the left's assumption that uh, The Handmaid's Tale hews entirely to their to their narrative because it's a bit more complex than that. Precisely. So I've uh, been, uh, well, I've been reading Nikki Sava's book uh, on plots and prayers. Uh, oh, I like to read a fictional time here and there um, as well. So Quite a few good tidbits <laughs> in there. But I've actually been watching... Um, the Loudest Voice, which is a, a mini-series that's being aired in Australia on Stan. I'm four out of seven episodes through. They've only released four so far. Um, it's based on the book uh, The Loudest Voice in the Room by Gabrielle Sherman uh, on the story of Roger Ailes, who's the founder of Fox News, um, played uh, very well by Russell Crowe. Um, Roger Ailes was always uh, often described as the Republican Party's de facto leader. Um, and it goes through uh, his sort of career uh, and then 
uh, in the next couple of episodes, it'll go through how it ended. Um, so at, at the start, uh, really, he left CNBC under a cloud of controversy. There were sexual harassment allegations. He was sort of pushed out um, and uh, f- forced to resign, but manipulated uh, his, his previous boss and signed a non-complete clause uh, with all existing news outlets, uh, not a new one. Uh, he then was snapped up by uh, Rupert Murdoch, who uh, wanted to launch Fox News, um, and it was it goes through the the creation of that. They set it up within about six months because not only did the ABC launch a, a news uh, cable channel, but also CMB, uh, MSNBC rather. Um, so they had to get in quite a rush to do that. But he talks about the creation of Fox News. And he talked about how basically the entirety of the news uh, news networks lean to the left. And when asking what is the audience of Fox News and, and someone tried to say, well, everyone, he disagreed. He said no, yeah, because news now is often a lot like um, Repub- like he, as a Republican strategist, he's like what we like to call in the Republican Party, getting at the base, finding... Uh, a loyal audience and and making it so they'll never want to change the channel. And he he describes all of the other media as competing against each other. And he basically says, well, we'll take the other half. And it's not long before Fox News is the highest rating cable news network. It goes through uh, his relationship with uh, Rupert Murdoch, uh, how the Fox News dealt with 9-11, um, and he's sincere, he's very, he's, he's hatred of, of Barack Obama to the <laughs> point where uh, he, he's directed uh, news anchors to start calling him Barack Hussein Obama uh, during <laughs> the original election uh, to, to Obama's intervention directly with Rupert Murdoch about Fox News' coverage. Um, it, it, it's definitely really interesting. Uh, it goes on, it, you know, in the previous time, talks about how Roger Ailes worked with Karl Rove uh, in uh, in the Bush administration to promote uh, uh, the fact that Iraq had a lot of issues, possibly weapons of mass destruction, and it became their number one topic. There's no doubt it was hugely in influential. Massively influential, massively influential. Uh, but I, I've, I've found it very interesting Um there is a lot of scandal around his sort of sexual harassment and allegations around sexual uh, alleged, alleged, alleged. Um, but uh, and you know it might have been designed as a some sort of stitch up, but you end up having a lot of sympathy towards Russell Crowe the way he plays it, and this is Russell Crowe as an as an as an actor um, uh, portraying the character of Roger Ailes, but um, he is very smart he comes across as very smart but um he just he his doctor basically um uh tells him that he's fat and ugly and he um he's like well none of those things are going to kill me <laughs> um he, he, <laughs> he uh yeah he, he's very humorous and it's uh yeah really good series so far oh well that's that's like thank you everyone because that's like nothing i've read about this I must actually go and have a look because a lot of the reviews have been scathing, in, in particular Russell Crowe, um, using a New York accent for a guy who's from Ohio and and uh, uh, 
trying to make Roger Ailes, you know, as repulsive as possible. But you're, you're suggesting that you know maybe maybe not so much. So yeah, I took a different a, a genuine a genuine uh, actor's portrayal of a of a real life human being. Yeah, what was what was the famous line about? Somebody said, "Oh, uh, to Rupert Murdoch, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, Fox News has discovered a bit of a." Uh, a bit of a niche in the market. Was it Roger Ailes who said, yeah, it's 50% of the population? Yeah, well, it's, it, it's half the population, he said. And and it, it goes through the details about how he, you know, basically demanded full editorial control, even when Rupert Murdoch had issues with some of the things said on Fox News. And he uh, goes through uh, this great scene where he basically kicks Lachlan Murdoch out of the newsroom uh, for trying to interfere with uh, his directions. <laughs> It's, it raises an interesting debate, though, this perennial debate about the influence of the Murdoch empire and of you know, terrible right-wing voices in the media and everything else. I think you touched on a fundamental point, though. It's not, you know, Fox News didn't invent bias. Every media outlet has some level of bias. Every media outlet has some editorial position and some way of seeing the world. Mm. And, and this is the point I always make. I would much rather, uh, and I would have more, more trust in, any network that even you know ones that I don't agree with, like the Guardian or Crikey or whatever, that has an editorial position, has a set of values, and sticks by it and is open about it, open about it, than organisations like the ABC that masquerade as these defenders of the objective truth. When and of course the ABC is 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 biased. I mean, you know, as is right with the issue, of course, is that we we pay for that bias. Um, but it, it's it's this. Endless, yeah, no, exhausting right. debate I, I think in America, in America too, especially, especially the, the there was amazing self-importance that was uh, attached to the to the anchors, you know, to the Dan Rathers and you know, going, you know, the eulogisation of uh, what's his name, Walter Cronkite. Ed, uh, Walter yeah. Cronkite, Ed Murrow. Before that, who who took on Joe McCarthy, who was actually a despicable human being, so I was shooting fish in a barrel. But but this idea that you know they were the independent voice of integrity and the truth, the truth. They so it was so what you say is quite right, but it's a real challenge to their to their self perception. And I mean, and Hollywood is still churning out all of these movies about journalists and how you know brilliant they are at the Washington Post and the New York Times and Blah 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 blah. Like they get some kind of mortgage on the truth. Well, well, I mean, look, there have been great, you know, Woodward and Bernstein and so on. But, but the the point is that uh, I think the the one I can't remember who said or, or where I read it, but somebody came out and said objective reporting is a is a myth. Objective reporting is a lie. There's always some lens through which we see the world to pretend otherwise is actually yeah. more dishonest. So, so long as oh, we have diversity. An, hmm. But but I mean that's a mid-century. Um, uh, a mid-century belief that you could have one or two or a couple of really key outlets and they would just tell you the truth. That was the role of the sort of um, uh, mid-century bourgeois idea about the role of the third estate or the fourth estate. Um, and and now that we're now that we're past that, we can actually be more honest and we can say, yeah. well, you you discover the truth by um, surveying lots of sources. Read left wing and right wing stuff. Yeah, so Reed, in, uh, yeah, yeah, so in that new world, Chris, remind me again what we're supposed to do with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, you can privatise it. Uh, that ah, that's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody wrote a book about that, I think. There is a fantastic book on this topic. I forget who wrote it. <laughs> Very good. Uh, we'll provide a link to that in our uh, in our show notes for anyone who hasn't already read it. You've been listening to Looking Forward, in which the views of the panellists do not necessarily reflect the views of the IPA. 
To access our research or to join or donate, please go to ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists today, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you. Gideon Rosner. Thank you. Evan Mulholland. Thanks. And, of course, our producer, Saul Muscatel. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. Mm -hmm.